welcome to another episode of the Big Band of Rossmore's Director's Notes online this December 16th, 2020. This series is, is a part of our band's efforts, despite the pandemic, to play or learn about music, learn about our culture, talk about our performances past or in the future, and also always, always emphasizing on music education. Most of all, it's an opportunity for us to collaborate between the generations, which in our band range from 14 years to 98 years old. This band was the founding band of a not-for-profit called Generations in Jazz, and we walk the walk and we talk the talk with the generations. We are Generations in Jazz. Tonight's special guest will be formally introduced by our own band member, Maxfield Hunt. He's trumpet section since seventh grade, 12 years that is. He's now a senior at San Francisco State who just so happens to also be graduating and his last class is today. Maxfield is the longest running student associate in the history of the band. I'm spending this much time uh, uh, on him because he's worth it. He's done so many things for the band and he is, if you will, the director of our uh, director's notes. Want to please gonna reiterate this for those of whom joined us last week it's still important fundamentally we're navigating zoom together so please bear with us uh for technical snafus or whatever it may be uh so far we're, we're good on this in this regard but be cognizant of of co concert going etiquette you know we don't want any naked people in the background you know that sort of stuff let's try to avoid that so far so good let's stick with this I better mute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as, as we've established, and many of us have gotten a preview now, director's notes is beyond keeping the band together is, is founded in history. And, you know, many of us, we're, we're an intergenerational band. It means half of us are not yet cool enough to live within the house our band is housed in. And we've established via last uh, speaker how supper clubs augmented jazz and how big band fits into that picture but it kind of it begs the question what comes before what comes what was before big band i know many of us are deep 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 into big band knowledge and i know myself being a henry mancini nelson riddle that's really my forte but in order to again authentically take a stage as a jazz band as a big band it really helps to understand what came before. And for that, of course, we are joined by John McCuster. We're going back in the Peapot, Mr. Peapotty's Wayback Machine, and we're going back to the beginning. And this is going to be just, just wonderful, so I'm going to hand it over to John McCuster. If you could start just a little bit about yourself, and then we'll jump in. All right, thank you uh, so much, uh, Max, um, and, and welcome everyone. It's good to be with you. Um, my career was as a uh, photojournalist uh, at the New Orleans Times-Picayune newspaper uh, and later the New Orleans Advocate. I did that for 30 years. Uh, but my interest in jazz began in the early 1990s uh, when I did a three-part series for my newspaper on the history of jazz, and I went and did a series of portraits of the musicians from Louis Armstrong's generation who were still alive and on the scene then. Uh, and that really was the beginning of my journey and my question. Uh, 
I found it vexing when I, when I wanted to learn about the history of jazz because I would go to many of the books that were available on the subject and they, they weren't helpful at all. Uh, they would often have, you know, just stories and, and tropes, but they didn't really have any documentation. And over the course of researching that story for my newspaper, I found that this was particularly sad because the voices of all the people that first made this music and witnessed its birth is on tape at Tulane University. You can go and listen to all of them and the, you'll hear it right from the horse's mouth how jazz was born. Zine jazz columnist thinks jazz was born. Uh, and the story is so interesting and it's particularly uh, a shame because when people know anything about jazz history at all, unfortunately, what they tend to know are the tropes and the mythology uh, rather than what actually happened. Um, now, with relation to big bands, what's interesting is that traditional polyphonic style collective improvisation, which is the hallmark of New Orleans jazz, bookended the big band era. If you look at the big band era from roughly 1936 to 1946, what came before it? Hot 20s jazz. What came after it? A revival in hot 20s jazz. Uh, so you're sort of, there you are in the middle. Uh, and what's interesting is the hot jazz in the 1920s certainly created uh, the thought processes that gave us the big bands of the 30s. And, and uh, and interestingly, when traditional polyphonic jazz returns, New Orleans style jazz returns after the era of the big bands, much of what has happened in the big bands finds its way into it. So they're not just regurgitating 1920s jazz, there's a lot of what was learned and what was thought out in the decades in between. So let's take it back. Uh, as we said, let's get in the Wayback Machine with Mr. Peabody and let's look at what often gets represented as the history of jazz. All right, well, here's a view of what my most recent gig is. Uh, for the last year, I've been putting together a museum at the Plantation House where one of the earliest jazz band leaders was born, Edward Kid Ory. And as fate and coincidence would have it, this is also the plantation where the largest slave uprising in American history started, the 1811 rebellion. So we tell those two stories. Uh, these are my two books. If you want to look later, we can have a shameless commerce part of the program later on. Uh, and this is just a view of the museum. The horn you see there is Kid Ori's Val Trombone that he was playing in New Orleans uh, in the teens at the time the King Oliver and Kid Ori um, and uh, Louis Armstrong were in his band. So uh, how did jazz come to be? How did this style of music arrive? And when we're talking about jazz and distinguishing jazz, when we're distinguishing early New Orleans jazz, you have to look at the predecessor musics that immediately fed into it and the context in which music was played in New Orleans. And what you'll find is you've got one, you've had brass bands on the streets since the 1840s giving funerals 
and parades. These were sponsored, these are not like Mardi Gras parades. These were sponsored by benevolent associations. And you would join one of these. And when you died, your funeral was paid for along with a brass band to escort you to the hereafter. Uh, these were made popular in the antebellum period in the 1840s, 1850s, right when modern keyed brass instruments are really coming onto the scene. And this is another, this is an important point to, to dispel one of the myths we touched on earlier. The idea that people used instruments left over from the Civil War, that the early jazz musicians played them. Find a picture of a Civil War band that's got a trombone, a trumpet, or a clarinet. I'll wait. There aren't any. The instruments were still under development. They changed a tremendous amount. Just the clarinet went through three or four different names in the 19th century. Uh, so I know you love the clarinet, Maurice. So um, all of this is changing. But what happens is, and what we find is, is around the turn of the century, this brass band tradition that's always been there is intersecting with two new national music styles. One is ragtime. Uh, we're all familiar with the music of Scott Joplin. Uh, if you've ever looked at a classic ragtime composition, it's actually four distinct melodic movements in one piece. It's almost like a mini suite. If you think of the maple leaf rag, the entertainer, you've got distinct melodic strains over the course of that song. And indeed, in the ragtime period, uh, if you read uh, musicians that were around in there, songs were much more interchangeable. We didn't have copyright uh, in the sense that people felt that they owned tunes. So one of the way that songs were disseminated, you know, in the era before recordings came to the fore, particularly among musicians who were fakers and couldn't just pull down the re recent sheet music that John Stark had out, uh, they would create their own rags. You know, I have four strains. I go perform my four-strain ragtime piece in the club. Well, it's pretty good, but my third strain isn't so good. I hear one of you playing your piano piece. Well, it's all right, but your first strain's really great. Your first strain is now my new third strain in my signature ragtime piece. And that's what ragtime was in a way. There are actually songs from that era where they'll say, I'm a rag picker. And it was called rag picking to go. When another term that came up later was a song catcher. But you go and you pick up these songs and you put them together. That's important. But the other most important thing that's going to come there and intersect this is the blues. And that brings us to our shall we say, uh, guide today as we go through the history of jazz. This is Kid Ory's Brown Skin Band from 1910. That's Kid Ory, uh, second from the left with the uh, trombone. And this is the band he brought to New Orleans in 1910. And Kid Ory's band is credited with being the hottest band in the city between 1900 and 1919. Uh, they he gave start to the careers of Johnny Dodds, King Oliver, Louis Armstrong, Johnny St. Cyr, uh, and a host of others. So we have Ori's story, and Ori was interviewed extensively, and Ori witnessed 
really the first 50 years of jazz history. So we're going to trace jazz history in part through Ori's observations and those of the people around him. In Kid Ori's case, we, and in the case of a, quite a number of other people that wanted to make music in New Orleans who were poor, and Louisiana that were poor, uh, they were so desperate to make music, they made their own instruments. And uh, there were a number of bands that you could come across in New Orleans like this. They were called spasm bands. And they would make their own instruments uh, out of cigar boxes and they would go out on the streets and hustle. And indeed, Kid Ori's first uh, musical experiences instrumentally were on a cigar box guitar that he made himself. And he eventually kits out his whole band with cigar box instruments. And uh, at our museum, we have some vintage century old cigar box uh, instruments on display along with contemporary ones. This is one I'll show you. This is one I made with a portrait of Fats Domino on it that I shot a few years ago. But I often think about this picture and this idea of people wanting to make music so bad that they make their own instruments. You ever drive your son or daughter to a music lesson and they have the same face? They're making the same face as when you take them to the dentist? that ever happens to you again in life, tell them the story about the Kid Ori and the young jazz musicians in New Orleans making their own instruments out of cigar boxes. <laughs> okay, just changing my page here. Now the critical intersection that people will talk about in jazz and really the Spark that got going is centered around the character of Charles Buddy Bolden. Uh, Buddy Bolden was born in 1877, and people like Kid Ory, Mutt Carey, Jelly Roll Morton uh, all point to him as the first hot band leader in New Orleans. And let's talk about that word hot and talk about terminology a little bit. The word jazz was not used in New Orleans to describe the music played here until after it had been applied to it elsewhere. If this music first gets called jazz in Chicago and California, in fact, the first appearance of the word J-A-Z-Z -Z in an American newspaper appears in the Los Angeles Times in 1912, and it was a sports colloquialism. The pitcher threw the ball with jazz. The team played with jazz. It meant pep, bigger, that, that sort of thing. In New Orleans, the guys still just called it ragtime, or they said, we're playing a blues. And what Kid Ori and others point to Buddy Bolden is doing is Buddy Bolden had a dance band, and they played the ragtime that had come along, but they said what Bolden did that was different was Bolden played the blues for dancing. In other words, he took the blues form and played it in a dance context for people to play with. And Kidori and others said people ate it up. 
and they went for it. Now, he said that Buddy Bolden wasn't necessarily a great musician, but he had figured out a way to put this music together in a way that people enjoyed, and he became very popular. His career was very short. He starts playing professionally around 1898. He plays his last music job in 1906, and the next year he's committed to a mental hospital where he spends the rest of his life. But a year before he has his problems, Kidori meets him. Uh, Kidori, at the age of 17, Kidori was born in uh, rural Louisiana, in Laplace, Louisiana, in 1886. And in 1905, when he's uh, about 17 years old, he comes to New Orleans for the first time. Uh, he was a sugarcane worker, and I would assume he had just gotten his payout from the sugarcane harvest that year. And that fall, he comes to New Orleans. <coughs> to go to the Warlines Music Store to buy a trombone. Wait a minute, didn't, doesn't jazz history say they used instruments left over from the Civil War? No, I'm afraid our jazz musicians went to a music store just like anybody else would. <laughs> got, a, got an instrument, nothing more exotic than that. But here's where the story gets interesting. He takes that trombone back to the neighborhood where his older sister lived, who he was staying with on this trip to New Orleans. And unbeknownst to Kid Ori, the corner that his sister lived at, Jackson Avenue and Robertson Street, was the hangout corner. This was the corner where musicians looking for jobs or band leaders looking for musicians would hang out and coordinate. Well, Ori just knows his sister's house is there and he's inside trying out his new horn and a knock comes on the door and he answers it. And who is it but Buddy Bolden? Of course, he doesn't know it's Buddy Bolden at first. There's no Google image search in 1905. He just knows there's this tall man speaking in a very deep voice to him saying, young man, is that you playing the trombone? Uh, or he figures out, oh my gosh, this is Buddy Bolden. And he's asking me to play music with him. And his sister tells him, no, no, you're going back to the country. You're not playing with Buddy Bolden. But Ori and his other bandmates from Laplace come into New Orleans and do what so many of the other young musicians of that period were doing, they were following Buddy Bolton, playing the blues, uh, playing loud, playing the hot music uh, that people were uh, enjoying. And that becomes Kid Ori's template for success, but also Ori and many others disparage Bolton for being rough. I think they mean rough musically, but they also mean not very refined, kind of a rough character sort of guy. And what Ori does is he also takes uh, his P's and Q's, as we used to say, from John Robichaud's Society Orchestra. John Robichaud led a society orchestra in the New Orleans area for over 30 years. They were reading musicians um, and they were a very good band, uh, but they weren't hot. They didn't play the blues but they showed up on time. They didn't show up drunk. Uh, they had nice uniforms. Uh, and uh, Ori kind of took some of that formula, put it together with playing the rough blues for dancing, and that became his template for success. And, you know, just to underscore the influence of Bolden, this is a manuscript, Calling the Children Home, written down by Bud Scott, 
Kid Ory's uh, guitar player who had played with Buddy Bolden and Kid Ory. Buddy Bolden used to say when he started a gig, I'm calling my children home and he'd blow the, the horn out the window. And this is an homage to that that Ory and Bud Scott wrote down 40 years later. Now this is a picture you're not likely to ever see anywhere else but in the Zoom call or at our museum. This is the birthplace of jazz. This is the cradle of jazz that you're looking at here. And it doesn't exist anymore, except for one or two buildings that are still there. This is the old back of town in New Orleans. When Lewis used to sing, I got a woman live way in the back of town, this is where he was talking about. And if you look right here where my cursor is, this is the only picture you will ever see of the house Louis Armstrong grew up in. That's at Perdido Street in Franklin. And this was the neighborhood where Buddy Bolden played, became popular. This is where Kid Ory first heard him. And in fact, this building right here next to Louis Armstrong's house is the Funky Butt Hall. That was the hall where Buddy Bolden used to play and uh, people talked about it. And indeed, Buddy Bolden's theme song was called Funky Butt. I thought I heard Buddy Bolden say, Funky Butt, Funky Butt, take it away. Now, looking at this picture, the street that runs right to left here is Franklin Street. This was the main drag of the Black Vice District in New Orleans at the time uh, that Bolden is on the scene at the dawn of the 20th century. The same street crosses Canal Street and goes into the white red light district, which was known as Storyville. Now, to this day, you'll go into jazz histories and they'll talk about jazz was born in Storyville this, jazz was born in Storyville that. Well, let's talk about what Storyville was and what Storyville was not. Remember, we're in the Deep South in 1900. Storyville is, for lack of a better description, the white man's sexual Disneyland in the Victorian age. It's not a petri dish of culture. And remember, white folks aren't sharing water fountains with black folks now. They're certainly not sharing the holiest of holies. So this whole idea that jazz, this expression of black American culture was born in an artificially created red light district that served whites only I don't know, guys, that sounds like a non-starter to me. And for years, I tried to figure out what, how that had gotten so bollocked up. And what it is, is Franklin Street. When Louis Armstrong talked about the good time girls on Franklin Street and in the good time district, he wasn't talking about where all the white bankers and so forth were going to. He was talking about the same neighborhood where his mama worked as a prostitute. And he didn't make any kind of distinction between the white district or the black district. He just saw it all as the good time district. <clears throat> but this little street here, this corner Lewis grew up on, that was the good time gambling and prostitution district. It was also a major corner for black carnival 
And my second book that you saw on the Mardi Gras Indians, that was the gathering place of the Mardi Gras Indians. Now the story of the Indians is a whole nother thing, but just know, and that's a whole nother lecture, but the Mardi Gras Indians are at the root of improvisational music making and are probably the best vestigial uh, ongoing cultural example of Africanisms in Creole New Orleans culture. If you've ever heard the song, Iko Iko, my grandma and your grandma sitting by the bio. Anybody heard that? Iko, 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 Ane. That comes from the Mardi Gras Indian tradition. So Lewis grew up with that on his doorstep, the good time life on his doorstep, Buddy Bolden playing two doors away. So when we think of the ultimate expression of the New Orleans style and the New Orleans vernacular music, Lewis grew up immersed in it. So who were the people that first played this music and how did this music progress? Well, this is Frank Dusen's Eagle Band in 1916. Uh, towards the end of his career, uh, Buddy Bolden was playing in Frankie Dusen's Eagle Band. And when Bolden went in the hospital, uh, Dusen really sort of took over the mantle of the old Bolden Band. And who arrives on the scene but Kid Ory and his band from Laplace in 1910. And they quickly become, uh, it's not a petri dish of culture. And remember, white folks aren't sharing water fountains with black folks now. They're certainly not sharing the holiest of holies. So this whole idea that jazz, this expression of black American culture was born in an artificially created red light district that served whites only. I don't know, guys, that sounds like a non-starter to me. And for years, I tried to figure out what, how that had gotten so bollocked up. And what it is, is Franklin Street. When Louis Armstrong talked about the good time girls on Franklin Street and in the good time district, he wasn't talking about where all the white bankers and so forth were going to. He was talking about the same neighborhood where his mama worked as a prostitute. And he didn't make any kind of distinction between the white district or the black district. He just saw it all as the good time district. <clears throat> but this little street here, this corner Lewis grew up on, that was the good time gambling and prostitution district. It was also a major corner for black carnival. And my second book that you saw on the Mardi Gras Indians, that was the gathering place of the Mardi Gras Indians. Now the story of the Indians is a whole nother thing, but just know, and that's a whole nother lecture, but the Mardi Gras Indians are at the root of improvisational music making and are probably the best vestigial uh, ongoing cultural example of Africanisms in Creole New Orleans culture. If you've ever heard the song, Iko Iko, my grandma and your grandma sitting by the bio. Anybody heard that? Iko, 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 Ane. That comes from the Mardi Gras Indian tradition. So Lewis grew up with that on his doorstep, the good time life on his doorstep, Buddy Bolden playing two doors away. So when we think of the ultimate expression of the New Orleans style and the New Orleans vernacular music, Lewis grew up immersed in it.
So who are the people that first played this music and how did this music progress? Well, this is Frank Dusen's Eagle Band in 1916. Uh, towards the end of his career, uh, Buddy Bolden was playing in Frankie Dusen's Eagle Band. And when Bolden went in the hospital, uh, Dusen, the Hatfields and the McCoys of jazz in New Orleans, uh, when their followers run into each other on the street in the street parade, there'll be a brawl. There'll be brick bracks uh, thrown. In fact, in 1910, Kid Ori and uh, the trumpet player from the Eagle Band both go to jail for getting in a fight outside the Eagle Saloon. But what's happened in the years after Bolden has left the scene is Deucen sort of held, held the line here. But when Ori comes along, Ori's band becomes a launching pad and the common musical experience of a host of absolutely essential early jazz musicians that are at the, you know, the, the very root of so many of uh, so many of the music styles and the, and the musicians and the types of uh, instrumentalists uh, that became prominent in the 20s. Johnny Dodds, Jimmy Noon, Joe Oliver, Armstrong, Mutt Carey, Johnny St. Cyr, Edward Garland, Bud Scott, all played in Kid Ory's band in New Orleans. And in various combinations thereof, recorded together in the studios in Los Angeles and Chicago and New York in the 1920s. So when you think of Louis Armstrong, think of him in sort of a uh, click with his mentors because all of these men, Louis Armstrong's the youngest of all of them. And so many of the men that he came up learning from were the men that were in the Ori band and they were all quite a bit older than he was. And that brings us to an interesting discussion. Here's a shot of Ori in New Orleans in 1917 quite the player. You'll note the, uh, the horseshoe, diamond-encrusted horseshoe uh, tie pin, the watch fob, the nice sharp Stetson he's got there. And here's King Oliver. Now, King Oliver and Kid Ory's careers are uh, inextricably linked. Kid Ory's band is considered the greatest of the hot jazz bands in New Orleans. And King Oliver is considered not just by me, but by people who actually know something about music like Gunther Schuller, to be the first cohesive soloist in jazz. Certainly Louis Armstrong recognizes him as that. In 1916, Joe Oliver and, Lou and Kid Ory throw their lots in together in New Orleans and create the Ori Oliver Band. And Louis Armstrong said that was the hottest band that ever played in New Orleans, was the Ori Oliver Band. And they were immensely successful. And what happens with Kid Ori's band in New Orleans and what would happen later on <coughs> nationally is jazz crosses over. When Buddy Bolden leaves the scene in 1906, his audiences are African-American and he's playing their functions. By the time Kid Ori leaves New Orleans, most of his work is for white folks, rich white folks, and the music has crossed over. It's to the point that this isn't just 
low-down honky-tonks. It's when debutantes come out uptown. It's daddy, I must have the kid already banned. However, 1918, the Kid Ori Band, Ori Oliver Band is playing in New Orleans and they get busted by the cops. Oliver's really upset. He's fed up with the harassment. He's got an offer to go to Chicago and he takes it. So here he is a year later playing in the grandstands at the World Series. This was the famous Black Sox scandal uh, when uh, uh, the World Series was thrown. But you'll see uh, Oliver in the center there with Ram Hall, who would later be one of Ori's drummers. This is Lawrence Dewey, who grew up on the same plantation as Kid Ori. And this is Willie Humphrey, who some of you may remember at Preservation Hall over the years. Uh, Willie lived to be uh, 94 years old. He was still playing there uh, late into his career. All right, well, let's blow up another myth. Uh, in jazz, and this is fun. You'll this is like so much smarter than your average freshman music student. Um, Louis Armstrong is unquestionably the alpha apex, whatever words you want to use, figure in American music writ large, and certainly jazz. Uh, Louis Armstrong. Uh, taught the world to swing. He taught what that meant and improvisation uh, and feeling. But most importantly to us as musicians and people that want to share music, uh, humanity. You always hear the humanity when Louis Armstrong is making music. Whether he's singing, whether he's playing, you feel it. You can't listen to Louis Armstrong and not feel it. Well, how did that come to be? Well, Louis Armstrong came from about as humble a background as you could come from. He's born to an unwed 15-year-old mother. His grandparent and great-parent parents raise him his first four years. And then he goes to live with his mother, but his mother is in the good time life. Uh, spends a fair amount of time in jail. She's an alcoholic. And yet, through all that, Louis Armstrong comes through all that to rise to be the group, probably the most influential American musician uh, ex to this point in, in history. And it's amazing that he can be that, and yet there's still so much confused about his background. And he shared, he helped create some of this confusion. I'm sure... Some of you, uh, like me, that are over 30 uh, will recall that Louis Armstrong always gave his birthday as July 4th, 1900. July 4th, 1900. Well, in 1988, uh, my late friend Tad Jones discovered Louis Armstrong's baptismal certificate showing that his actual birthday was August 4th, 1901. And since that discovery, a lot of the discussion about that has been about, no, I believe Lewis, no, no, but this document, you know, and that's the wrong argument. Take the contradiction of the cognitive dissonance of that and see what you can learn from it. And this is what, I, what led me to this. On the right side of your screen is Louis Armstrong's registration for World War I. 
The call up came in the fall of 1918, right as King Oliver's leaving New Orleans to go to Chicago. Kid Ory wants to hire Louis Armstrong to take over King Oliver's spot. King Oliver wants him to hire Lewis. The problem is Lewis has just turned 17 years old. So if he hires Lewis and they go in a bar and the cops give him a hard time or the bar owner says, hey, you got to get this kid out of here. I'm going to lose my license. They'd be in trouble. So Lewis had to figure out a way to make himself look old enough to be in a bar. So that fall, the second call up to the Great War comes along. Now, none of these folks would ever see combat. The war would be over in another six or seven weeks. And Lewis wasn't required to register because he's only 17 and he's a coal cart driver. That was an exempted profession. But he goes and registers all the same. And he lists his employer as Pete Lala, 1500 Conti Street, musician. Pete Lala held one of the clubs in the Good Time District. And he had been giving Kid Ori a hard time about having Lewis in the band. So Lewis's solution, obviously, was to go down, register for the draft, give his birthday as July 4th, 1900. Who's going to argue with that? And then he even got his employer's name on there. So Mr. Pete at the club would let him stay there and play in the band. That is why Lewis Armstrong lied about his birthday to start his career early. And if that seems improbable to you, uh, I would refer you to about a, two years ago, uh, Doris Day passed away. And there was a great interview with her on Fresh Air. And she talked about when she was 16, a big band leader wanted her to go on tour with them. And she couldn't because she was 16. And they just said, well, we'll just tell people you're two years older. So she goes on tour with the band leader, forgets about it for years. And years later, on her 30th birthday, her mom walks in with a cake and says, oh, honey, guess what? You're only 28. So that's a story Doris Day told herself about lying about her age to get her music career started. I guess since Lewis lied to the federal government, I guess he figured once he had lied to the federal government, he better stick with the same lie uh, after that. But anyway, that is the origin of the Louis Armstrong uh, mythical birthday, and that's the reason behind it being there. Uh, in the 20s, jazz is recorded. Kid Ory goes to California, makes the first record by a black New Orleans jazz band in 1922. Here's that record. This is one of the most sought after 78s in jazz history. You pay about a thousand for one of these babies. And then in 1925, his old friend King Oliver asked him to join him with his band in Chicago, the Dixie Syncopators. And hearing that he might be coming to Chicago, Louis Armstrong wrote to Kid Ory and said, well, how about coming and joining the Hot Five? And once he gets in the Hot Five, Jelly Roll Morton finds out he's in town and says, hey, come be in the Red Hot Peppers. So that's, that's a pretty sweet jazz trifecta. Uh, I hope some of you can have a moment like that in your in your career. And going back just for a second, this is an example of the, one of the museum panels we have uh, at the Kid Ori Historic House. Uh, these documents that you see on here are all, we have the originals in our collection. The bottom left are the lyrics that Louis Armstrong wrote out in his hand 
to the Hot Fives recording, I'm Not Rough, uh, before they uh, recorded it in 1926. On the right is the orchestration and the lead sheet for Skidat Didat uh, by Lil Harden, another recording by the Hot Five. You'll see her, her manuscript recorded at Chop Suey above, and also Ori's Immortal Savoy Blues. And these are all documents that are in our collection. Interesting story, and this is one of my favorite kind of flip things to say when people ask me. Uh, we talk about Jelly Roll Morton. Uh, Jelly Roll Morton, people will say, is his music improvisational or did he write his music down? And I say yes. Um, and here's what I mean by that. Kid always told the story in his in his uh, in an interview about recording with Jelly Roll Morton. And Jelly had written out a piece for him, and they went through it on rehearsal at the Webster Hotel in uh, Chicago. And Jelly hears what what Ori's playing. He goes, "Wait, wait, wait, wait! That sounds terrible. I can't write your music. Throw that away and play that part your own way." Now, meanwhile, the trumpet player in the band was George Mitchell. He was not a get-off musician. He had to read. But I found this in Ori's collection. This is in Jelly Roll's hand. It's the lead sheet for trumpet on top of Sidewalk Blues. Below is the trombone part with that part ripped off at Jelly Roll's direction so the kid Ori could improvise that part and play it his own way. And here's our, our panel talking about Jelly Roll Morton. When you look at Jelly Roll Morton, you know, so often his music is not played today except by piano players. Very few bands attempt to tackle Jelly Roll Morton because it's hard. It is hard music to play. Um, and his arrangements uh, are his arrangements. And if, if you want to play them, it, it is a difficult row to hoe. Now we're getting to the big bands. And it was the big bands and the emergence of the big bands that happened as hot jazz is leaving the scene. Hot jazz is the national music style from 1917 to about 1927. And by then, the musical establishment, the people that know how to write the word, write the notes, know how to write the arrangements, write the harmonies, the Fletcher Hendersons of the world and so forth, they've learned what they could learn from the hot musicians that had come through the 20s, and now they're taking that and putting it to pen and creating the incredible arrangements that Fletcher Henderson did for Benny Goodman's band. Um, and this incredible work that, that Ellington did. But it puts all the hot jazz musicians out of work because they're all improvising players. Most of them don't really read music, and Ori spent a good bit of the 1930s crawfishing. <laughs> Here he is doing that. But on the other end of the big bands in the mid-1940s, people were getting bored with the big bands. And one school of music went off and said, oh, well, we're going to do bebop. We're going to do John Coltrane and Miles Davis and Lester Young. We're going to go do that. And then other people were like, wait a minute. You know, let's get back to what that old jazz was. And it makes perfect sense. This is 20 years after the jazz age. 
What was the number one show in America in 1974? Happy Days. I'm trying to tell the story of 20 years earlier. There's a natural nostalgia that occurs generationally uh, over the years among different generations. Um, I, I never thought I'd live long enough to see people feeling nostalgic about the 70s. <laughs> if you are, you weren't there. Or you're colorblind. Bad colors in the 70s. Uh, but anyway, Kid Ory returns to music in the 1940s. There's, and Louis Armstrong breaks up his big band, starts playing in the small band format again. And we have a revival in traditional jazz. So it's there on, on both sides of the big band. So what did the big bands take from the hot jazz era? Well, obviously the hot solo. Um, you know, the idea of your get-off musician that can step out in front of everyone else and play something really great. Uh, in the New Orleans style, you have the polyphony, the many voices at once, the clarinet doing variations on, on the melody, the trumpet stating the melody, the trombone playing uh, bass variations and also slides, growls, gliss, almost the punctuation of the arrangement. Uh, with the slide trombone. And when you get to when you get to swing era, you've got an army of of clarinets. So you've got a wave of harmony that's possible to be coming from that instrument all at the same time. You've got all the shades and nuance that you would have in any orchestral arrangement, which is what a big band is. It's just really just a jazz orchestra. Um, but the idea of playing hot, having different feels for each, um, chorus and that sort of thing. Those are all things that were part of big bands. And what we find when New Orleans or the traditional jazz style reemerges after the big bands is it's glommed onto some of the big band stuff, more soloing, uh, even taking on some of the, uh, the songs from the big band era. I have a, a kind of a detail question, actually two of them. Um, one is, uh, uh, the first piece of music you put up, a uh, significant amount of measures didn't have four beats in them. They were coming up shy. Mm -hmm. And uh, the second question uh, is the, uh, uh, the Franklin Street you were talking about. Is that uh, Franklin Avenue? It starts no. in, uh, no? No, it was Franklin Street. There was South Franklin and North Franklin. It was north above Canal, south below. It was the street that ran parallel to the river. Franklin Avenue runs perpendicular to it. Right, right. Yeah. It's now called Crozat Street. Oh, okay. All right. So so that neighborhood, is that now um, uh, Louis Armstrong Square? Is it no. There? No? Uh, no, it's Duncan Plaza. It's a place where most of the homeless sleep. It's right in front of City Hall. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, John, uh, this is uh, Jamie Harris. Thank you for this. Hey, it's Jamie. Wonderful. And uh, I, I play trombone, so I'm really delighted to hear about Kid Ory. All right. Uh, you know, he has a very famous, beautifully simple, but famous solo on Saints Go Marching In. Uh, I wonder if there's if you ever run across a story about that particular solo. Uh, by Kid Ory? On by Saints Kid Go Ory. Marching In? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, not that particular one, because he didn't really record that, I think, until the 50s. Probably, um, yeah. 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 Um, but I think when you, what's really interesting about Kid Ory, uh, 
is that his playing is not melodic in the least. It's all rhythmic. Uh huh. You know, when you listen to him, it's 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 all rhythm. You're not generally going to hear. It's not Trummy Young. It's not J.C. Higginbotham. Yeah. Um, you know, it is a very rhythmic style uh, of trombone. Yeah. Well, that, that solo exemplifies. It's very lean. Very few notes. Oh, the one oh, I, it in time. Yeah. Well, it, you know, I the one I really love is the one on Strutting with some Barbecue, the 1927 right. recording with with Louis Armstrong's Hot Five. It's all rhythm. Yeah. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Well, thank you. And I, I can't wait to get to New Orleans and come to that museum. Hey, man, I can't wait till we can all leave our houses, man. I'm just hoping we can all get our shot in our arm and we can all go buck wild. You know, this is this is just too much. Well, um, I have a question about the records that are in the in the picture here. Uh, is the sound from those accessible somewhere? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, in fact, um, you know, all the all the Louis Armstrong Hot Five, the Jelly Roll Martin Red Hot Peppers, the King Oliver recordings, those are all commercially available. They've all made it to the digital age. Okay. I'm just an old fogey, so I've got Victrolas and 78s and stuff, just because <laughs> I can. <laughs> hey, John, this is George Marquis. I'm hey, George. I'm the guitar player with the band. And I noticed a lot of these old bands prior to the big band area, they all had banjos. And yet, all of a sudden, they just disappear and you never see them anymore. What, whatever happened to all that? Well, George, let's go back another step. Did you notice that what the guys in the older pictures were, were playing? Yeah. Guitars. Well, yeah, but there were a lot of, there's another guy always with a banjo in there. And I just. Well, well, well but, but it's different eras. In, yeah. in other words, the guys in New Orleans weren't playing banjos with the bands until the mid-teens. Before that, it was guitar. Um, and indeed, you know, one of the best guitar players out there was Johnny St. Cyr, and he played a six-string gitjo, hmm. or banjitar, rather than, you know, a tenor or four-string banjo. Uh, so those guys were with guitars, and it was later on, and one of the things that may have, have spurred them to get banjos in New Orleans and, and elsewhere after that was the addition of the piano. In New Orleans, up until the late teens, the jazz bands didn't have pianos. They had guitar. But when they added that piano and that extra sound and noise, you needed to cut through that. So that may be one of the things that brought the banjo in. I noticed some of the guitars look like they're resonator guitars that are sort of twangy like a banjo. Oh. Not, well, not in Bolden's band. Interesting, in Bolden's band, it's a classical guitar, if you look closely, a gut-string guitar. And then if you look at the guitar in Kid Ori's early band, it's a 12-string steel-string guitar. No kidding. So I don't think anything is any one way or the other. And also, if you go back to Kid Ori's band in 1910, they've still got a violin. And one of the interesting stories about, you know, the instrumentation is still evolving. Ori's starting with a valve trombone. And the instrumentation is evolving. And what happens is as the New Orleans style of polyphony develops and the trumpet takes the lead as the melodic instrument in the ensemble, it made the violin superfluous. What did the violin do before? Was it sort of like melody. gypsy jazz? Melody, it was the lead melody instrument. Okay, cool. So with the trumpet taking the lead melody, the violin became superfluous. Or more on a more commercial level, uh, when, 
Kid Ory saw the original Dixieland Jazz Band records come out in 1917, he fired his violin player because they didn't have one and they sold a hundred and something thousand records. So why is he going to play a guy, pay a guy to play violin? (laughs) (laughs) Take note all you violin players in the band. (laughs) Right. And then if you look at the Bolden band photo, you've got two clarinet players. One's playing a B flat, one's playing a C. We would presume the C clarinetist is playing melody. Or the violin part. Hmm. You start talking. Yeah, uh, I, I have a question. I'm Ron Solis. Um, Hi, Ron. Yeah, that very good presentation. I I am very. I play the trumpet, but uh, a guy by the name of Jack Teagarden played the trombone, and I thought he was terrific. I, I believe he was from Texas. Uh, Big T, yeah, he's from Texas. Yeah, and, and what, where about did he come in? Because I've heard him play with uh, on some records with uh, Armstrong. Oh, yeah. Well, Jack Teagarden uh, was one of those uh, guys that was around in Chicago in the 20s and was learning from so many of the New Orleans guys. Uh, he had a big band uh, for a while, and he was an inaugural member of Louis Armstrong's All-Stars, which was his band that he founded in 46 or 47 that was the small jazz ensemble like uh, like from the 20s. Yeah. So it, it, he's not still alive, is he? Oh, point? goodness, no. Jack Teagarden's, <laughs> oh my goodness, he's got to be, he'd have been in his hundreds by now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. He, came, he came after Armstrong then. He was born after Armstrong, yeah. uh, but they played together in the same band for a long time. Yeah, I know. I know that. Yeah, right? yeah. He, yeah. He was younger than Armstrong. Yeah. It's not a petri dish of culture. And remember, white folks aren't sharing water fountains with black folks now. They're certainly not sharing the holiest of holies. So this whole idea that jazz this expression of black American culture was born in an artificially created red light district that served whites only. I don't know, guys, that sounds like a non-starter to me. And for years, I tried to figure out what, how that had gotten so bollocked up. And what it is, is Franklin Street. When Louis Armstrong talked about the good time girls on Franklin Street and in the good time district, He wasn't talking about where all the white bankers and so forth were going to. He was talking about the same neighborhood where his mama worked as a prostitute. And he didn't make any kind of distinction between the white district or the black district. He just saw it all as the good time district. But this little street here, this corner Lewis grew up on, that was the good time gambling and prostitution district. It was also a major corner for black carnival. And my second book that you saw on the Mardi Gras Indians, that was the gathering place of the Mardi Gras Indians. Now, the story of the Indians is a whole nother thing, but just know, and that's a whole nother lecture, but the Mardi Gras Indians are at the root of improvisational music making and are probably the best vestigial uh, ongoing cultural example of Africanisms in Creole New Orleans culture. If you've ever heard the song, Ico Ico, my grandma and your grandma sitting by the bio. 
Anybody hear that? Aiku, 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 Ani. That comes from the Mardi Gras Indian tradition. So Lewis grew up with that on his doorstep, the good time life on his doorstep, Buddy Bolden playing two doors away. So when we think of the ultimate expression of the New Orleans style and the New Orleans vernacular music, Lewis grew up immersed in it. So who were the people that first played this music and how did this music progress? Well, this is Frank Dusen's Eagle Band in 1916. Uh, towards the end of his career, uh, Buddy Bolden was playing in Frankie Dusen's Eagle Band and when Bolden went in the hospital, uh, Dusen- John, can you uh, give us some perspective on the um, use of the cornet and the trumpet? Was that a, a shift that happened with Louis Armstrong or did it happen another way? Well. You know, the, the instruments that they played in New Orleans were cornets. And when uh, King Oliver left New Orleans, he had a cornet. When Lewis started in Kid Ory's band, he had a cornet. Um, Lewis is playing, you know, cornet in Chicago still, but at some point he switches to trumpet. It's hard to tell exactly when that happened because it happened, I believe, when they were still recording mechanically. They hadn't even done electrical recordings yet. So the shading you would hear between the more mellow cornet and the more fiery trumpet sound, if you will, is probably going to be lost just because of the nature of the recordings. But it was around in there. Hmm. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, there's a distinction. We're, we're going around these different horn and instrument questions. The distinction between horn band versus string band, and yes, what maybe speak to that a little bit, because I, I right, and this this is a this is a terminology that sometimes gets lost on people. One hundred twenty years ago, if you asked a musician, you know, what kind of band is it, and he said a brass band, they would mean a brass band with uniforms that march in parades and play funerals. Even though it's called a brass band, it has reeds in it. It's going to have an E-flat clarinet, B-flat clarinet, you know, and a couple of decades later, it's going to have saxophones. When you talk about a string band, what a string band is, is not a string band like, you know, a Sicilian string band or the Hot Club of France or something. What they mean by string band is a sit-down configuration of a brass band. Hmm. So your sousaphone or your tuba is replaced by your string bass. Um, you know, your, your, your peck horns, like your alto and baritone horns, you know, you've got a guitar, not that. And that's how you end up with that lineup, that, that wind band lineup in the New Orleans traditional dance band, which is in the back in the day was called the string band. Okay. Hmm. Now, now Mo, I saw you taking notes. Do you have, a, do you have any questions, Mo? I, I saw you oh, seriously taking notes. I, I, I have a lot of questions, but. But I'm afraid I, what I don't want to do is step over the line time-wise, and there's so much more that we need to talk about. Um, but um, I, the one question that I have, John, is this is directed at you. Where did this passion of yours come from? For you to, to be so involved in the preservation of the history of you know this American art form, uh, how, what fueled that passion? 
Well, I, I appreciate the question. Um, I think it was a number of things that just kind of all resonated in just sort of this har harmonious, sympathetic notes throughout my whole being. Um, when I got interested in New Orleans jazz and looking at the history, you know, it, it appealed to my interest in history. Uh, it appealed to my love of this place and the uniqueness. You know, early on we were talking, you were talking about New Orleans and the South, the South. Well, I mean, geographically we're in the South, but there is absolutely nothing in New Orleans that has anything to do with Birmingham, Alabama, or Jackson, Mississippi, or Atlanta, Georgia, or any other place you're going to go in the South. Why? Well, we weren't founded by WASP Protestants. You know, we were founded by Catholics and Africans. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the heart of what New Orleans is, is, you know, Catholic colonizers and Africans. And that's why we were different. That is what Creole culture is. That's what it comes from. And, and it's all one journey of discovery for me to follow that and learn more about it. Uh, I think there's also a pride of place with it, um, that we are different. Um, and also, you know, going through the Katrina experience and the losses of that, seeing a period where there were people that were questioning whether there would even be in New Orleans. And seeing the way that the nation responded and said, oh yeah, there's gonna be a New Orleans all right. And that the rest of the world and the rest of this country came and helped us realize that and helped us rebuild our city and recreate it because along the way, they realized what New Orleans had given the world in terms of jazz, in terms of rock and roll, uh, in terms of blues, in terms of culture, uh, cuisine, uh, you know, that, that part of it is, is just always makes me feel happy and being able to share it with people that haven't seen it. As my old friend, Lola Sarek Eli used to say, the United States is a wonderful place, but I prefer New Orleans. <laughs> well, I, I, I have a quick question about the plantation house. I was lucky enough. Uh, this is Karen, Max's aunt. Hi, Karen. <laughs> Hello. I was, I'm lucky enough to get to New Orleans and I was just at the plantation house three weeks ago. Now is the museum closed right now? Are you at the 1811 Kidori historic house? Uh, yes. Really? Is so that... we met? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I would love to go because I'm going to be going to New Orleans quite a bit. Okay. Well, good. I hope be come and see us we're uh we have our fire marshal inspection friday okay um and we should have our occupational license by uh first of the year so please come and see us oh i will I and we've got the there. coolest swag uh kid Ori face masks thank you well we're going to close out um, i'm sure on behalf of the whole rossmore big band and our special guests from rossmore we want to extend just the biggest thank you john that was oh. an incredible, incredible story. And everybody's clapping and I wish they were unmuted. You could hear it all, but don't unmute, okay? Please. Because yeah, you know why. Okay. If 36 so jazz fans clap in a forest and there's no one to hear it. I'm still happy they're <laughs> clapping. <so. laughs> well, I wanted to thank a few other people and then do the final housekeeping. So uh, thank you all so much for having me in 1811kidoryhistorichouse.com. Come and see us. 
and, you, and those two and the books we got to get the books the, the whole the whole shebang we need the full full experience yeah 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 so we're taking a bus sometime soon right like louie did we'll see you soon we're gonna get a bus and the whole band will be down there and... get on the uh get on the train and come Sunset. yeah Ooh. Ooh. all right i'm in a train yep.